Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Second Timothy chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is God's word. Please pray with me as we open the word together. Father, we do... We thank you for uh, your goodness and provision in Christ for us that uh, we can gather together to exalt him and worship him. And I thank you, Lord, uh, for that time even this morning. And as we open your word now, Lord, we pray you would speak to our hearts by the work of your spirit, through the power of your word, for the glory of your name. Amen. Parting words often sum up the substance of a person's life. They are often consonant with what was of greatest importance and priority for that individual. They can even give us a glimpse into the course or direction of a person's life. Consider, for example, these words from Voltaire, the French revolutionary and functional atheist when on his deathbed he was asked to renounce Satan. He said, this is no time to make new enemies. Now contrast that with these words from Polycarp, one of the first martyrs of the early church as he was about to be burned at the stake and was asked to renounce Christ. He said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? In that moment, we see the sum and the substance of his life. Or consider these words from Hugh Latimer, one of the English reformers who was put to death under the bloody reign of Queen Mary. As he was about to be burned to death, he turned to his good friend, Nicholas Ridley, and he said this, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle in England as I hope by God's grace shall never be put out. His loyalty, his love, his allegiance was evident in that moment. Now, I I want you to take a minute and think 
about your life. And fast forward, if you will, to, to that scene, perhaps, where you may utter your final words. What will have characterized your life in that moment? What, what will have been your greatest love, your driving passion, your sustaining hope? What, what will have been the sum and substance of your life? What will you say? Let, let, me, let me ask it a little more succinctly. What will you have worked for all of these days? What will you have walked in and, and what will you have watched for? Those are my questions to you this morning as you think about that day, perhaps, that may come for some of us sooner than others. This morning we'll consider the parting words of the Apostle Paul to his favored son, Timothy. And, and as we think about, about our lives, about the summary of our lives and the substance of our lives, this text gives us clear direction. And it tells us what we're to work for and what we're to walk in and what we're to watch for. Last week we saw how how God works to bring about a complete faith in the life of the Christian. Particularly, we, we marveled at the power of the Word to make us wise for salvation and the purpose of the Word to make us whole, complete, equipped for every good work. That's the kind of Word we have. Now, what kind of work should we do with that Word? That's the question before us. And so Paul is clear to give Timothy a charge. He says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. A, a charge is a serious or earnest command. And, and this is Paul's exhortation to Timothy in what his life is to be about. He's given clear direction and vision in, in the nature of his work and the substance of his life and ministry. And the charge we find here is really consistent with, with other things that Paul has told Timothy throughout this letter. To follow the pattern of sound words, to guard the good deposit, the gospel, to rightly handle the word of truth. So now he gives this solemn charge. We know it's solemn because it's given in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. And what he tells us about Christ is, is he references that he is the judge who is to come in his appearing. The one who is to judge the living in the dead. He's, he's saying that, Timothy, this is, this is regarding this charge, ultimate matters. Matters of life and death. And so listen closely. And this is that charge, very simply. Preach the Word. Proclaim the Word. Herald the Word. That's the, that's the word Paul uses. Now this, this, uh, this job description for herald is not common in our day and age. So we need to think about, about the context that Paul was speaking that, as he says, preach the word, preach the gospel, to do it in a way that a herald would proclaim a message that they've been given. That, that is, they don't tinker with it. 
or adjust it to their own opinions or preferences. They simply proclaim it. They shout it loud. That's the role of a herald. Why? Why is it just a proclamation and not a a redirection of that? Because the message there to herald did not originate with them. They They are simply a means of communication, if you will. Behind that message, behind that herald, stands a greater authority. In this case, God himself. Let let me give you an example of what this looked like in in first century context. When Greece was invaded by Persia and the Greeks won the great battles of Marathon and Solness, they sent heralds, or or what were called evangelists, who proclaimed the good news to the cities. And this is what they said. We have fought for you, we have won, and now you are no longer slaves, you are free. That's the message they proclaim. And just as the herald announces the good news of victory, so the preacher does the same. But the victory is far greater because it's an ultimate victory that he preaches and announces and proclaims. It's the ultimate victory over sin and death accomplished by Christ on the cross. Now a gospel. What is a gospel? This word we're to preach it is, it, is a, it is good news of some event that changed things in a meaningful way. That's how the word was used in its context when Paul was writing. It's, it's good news of an event that changed things in a meaningful way. For example, there's an ancient Roman inscription about the life of Caesar that starts with these words, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. See, they're saying that the life of Caesar, the emperor of, of, of all, was good news. And it's going to change life. The story of his life changed the course of Rome forever. That's the point of calling it a gospel. And so the preacher delivers the message exactly as it was given. And he proclaims the good news of victory. That's what Paul is calling Timothy to and friends, here we are 2,000 years later, and it's the very thing he calls us to. And it is why in this pulpit we maintain a commitment to expository preaching, where we open the Word week in, week out, going through a book of the Bible to understand not what, what we think, our opinions or preferences, but what God thinks, that, that the message of the Word becomes the message of the sermon that's our commitment. We've maintained it for decades, and we pray by God's grace we would continue to do so. And that is what we should always demand of our preachers, whether in this place or elsewhere. Never let us forget it. But it's not always what, what preaching is across this land or elsewhere. I've heard preaching described this way, a mild Mannered man standing up before a mild-mannered people, exhorting them to be more mild-mannered. I hope that never characterizes our preaching. I heard this week, I read of a longtime pastor of a sizable congregation who was speaking very, very honestly about his regrets in ministry 
Listen to what he said. I marvel when someone says, I have no regrets. That's not me. I have plenty. Perhaps my biggest regret, outside of not spending more time with my kids when they were growing up, is that for much of my 30 years of ordained ministry, I have not preached the gospel. By and large, I've been a nice man standing in front of nice people, telling them that God calls them to be nicer. And just about none of it was life-changing. Friends, we preach the Word because we want to hear God speak and we want to see God change lives to make us wise for salvation and to make us whole and complete for life. That is why we preach God's Word. And we proclaim the gospel, the ultimate victory of Christ over sin and death. It's only that gospel, that good news, that will truly change lives. For so many of you, you know it personally. You've seen it in your life, in the course of your life, as God has worked powerfully by His Word, through His Spirit, to reassure you of the truths that are yours in Christ Jesus, that you believe in Him by faith alone, because you've learned that from God's Word. And so we proclaim it, and the Word does its work. The Word does its work. Even even when it's proclaimed feebly or weakly, the Word still works mightily and powerfully. I, I like what uh, Martin Luther says in speaking about the Word working. He says, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the Word worked. I did nothing. The Word did everything. That's why we preach the Word. The question is, how do we preach the Word? That's, that's where Paul goes as he exhorts Timothy with this charge. He then says, preach it, Timothy, with all urgency, all honesty, and all diligence. With all urgency, as if life and death hung in the balance. Be ready in season and out of season. One translation says it this way, press it home on all occasions, convenience and inconvenience. Press it home, not only with urgency, but with all honesty. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. If there are errors, let the word correct and reprove. If sin, then the word must convict and rebuke. If discouragement and hopelessness, then let the word exhort and encourage the hearer. Not only with urgency and honesty and diligence, but But patiently, Timothy, patiently as you preach the Word, instructing and teaching, letting the Word do its work by the power of the Spirit. That's your method and your manner. This is the work of the preacher. So you might be asking, I hope, what does that have to do with me? I'm not a preacher. I go to work on Monday, not on Sunday. What does this text have to say to me? It's a charge to Timothy to carry on the work of the ministry, to preach the word, to proclaim the gospel. What 
What does that have anything to do with me? I'm not called to do that in the same way. I think it has absolutely everything to do with each one of us. For it makes crystal clear for us what is of first importance to God for his people. This is God writing through through Paul to proclaim clearly that the word is what is of first importance and preaching the word so that we would be a people that, that hunger for the word and love the gospel and, and, and speak the gospel to ourselves and proclaim it to others. That, that we would thirst for it like a man stranded in the desert for a week thirsts for a cup of water. That we would come in this place hungry and thirsty to hear the word and to be ministered to by the word that we would be changed by it, that we would be eager to listen and ready to listen, having read the passage the night before, maybe even the week before, maybe, maybe even the entire month, reading through Romans as we prepare for the series in Romans, thinking about it, letting, letting the Word do its work, asking the questions of the texts, that I might come and hear God's Word and be fed and be changed. So that I might also proclaim the gospel. That's the role of the word and the work of God's people. That I might be ready with the gospel. That's what we're to work for. No matter if I'm a pastor or a plumber, I need to have the gospel on my lips. And I need to speak it, the word, at every turn. But this will not always be easy. That's what Paul tells us. He now warns us about a certain human tendency to wander from the truth. And so here we begin to see what Paul wants Timothy and all of us to walk in, namely the truth, verse 3 through 5. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Friends, I'm sorry to say this happens across the land in some of our churches. There's a wandering away from the truth into myths. A former colleague describes the current state of the evangelical church this way when he writes, These are tumultuous and indeed unsettling times. As the rising tide of post-Christian secularism threatens to capsize the evangelical church, and as many foul breezes rip across her deck, it is the pulpit that should be out in front, leading, navigating, warning of danger, signaling hope. Regrettably, however, it is the pulpit that is all too often relegated to the rear, pastors choosing instead to lead with all the rest. As a a result, many churches are left adrift in a sea of moral and theological confusion, tossed to and fro by every wind and doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. See, the church tossed to and fro, wandering away from the truth. That's the danger Paul warns against. And so he shows us with clarity then what we are to walk in. There are those who wander from the truth with no 
awareness that they've left the truth behind at all. And the reason this is such a serious danger is the, the human temptation that we all have hardwired into us is to pursue our personal preferences over revealed truth. That's how we're put together. We, we, we gravitate toward what we think, what we prefer, what our opinions and views are, rather than being informed by the Scriptures and pursuing the Scriptures to have clarity of thought. This is endemic to the human condition. The picture of itching ears refers to people who crave spicy bits of information due to mere curiosity. Mere curiosity leads them off the path of truth to wander into myths. And people pile on teacher after teacher after teacher who suit their own fancy. One commentator tells us they have a desire to dabble with novelty, to covet new fashionable ideas, and long for the excitement of having their ears tickled. That would be a description of our current age. See, we, we see in the contemporary impulse to, to think and reason eclectically, where we take a little here and a little there and a little from Oprah and a little from Sean Hannity and a little from over here and this reading and that, and we put them all together to form our own ideology, our own philosophy, our own theology that then runs our own lives but wanders from the truth with our own preferences as the ultimate authority. That's the modern impulse. See, the fundamental problem with this approach is it fails to account for revealed truth. Some 30 years ago, Francis Schaeffer gave an address at Notre Dame University and said, Christianity is not a series of truths, in the plural, but rather truth spelled with a capital T. Biblical Christianity is capital T truth concerning total reality and the intellectual holding of that total truth and then living in light of that truth. See, that's Paul's concern for Timothy. That's Paul's concern for the church. That's why preaching the word is so necessary. That's the overarching truth of Christ, that that truth would dominate every other thought that I might have. And it would take captive every lesser idea and inclination. So Timothy, preach the word so, so that your hearers can walk in the truth of Christ. Be true to truth, Timothy. Be true to truth. But recognize it won't be easy. There will be opposition along the way. That's how John Calvin describes it. He says, the more determined men become to despise the teaching of Christ, the more zealous should godly ministers be to assert it and more strenuous their efforts to preserve it entirely and more than that by their diligence to ward off Satan's attacks. Now let me ask you, what does it look like to walk in the way of truth? I think Paul answers that question in verse 5, where he gives us four more imperatives. He says, Timothy, as for you, always be sober-minded. That is, be free from the 
spiritual and mental drunkenness of the age. Be well-balanced in your thinking, self-controlled. Let, let truth reign. And then l- endure suffering. Let, let the truth of Christ and the hope of his complete triumph carry you through suffering. Whatever you do, Timothy, don't change the message. Don't, don't change the message to avoid hardship. See, we live in a culture that demands that we change the message of the gospel in order to get along today. Or else we will endure suffering. Paul's saying, no, endure the suffering. Let the message speak because the message is true. And he says, do the work of an evangelist. Take this truth and speak it. Proclaim it, evangelize, share the good news, announce the gospel in every quarter, and in so doing, fulfill your ministry. Carry out your duties, Timothy. Lead them all in the way of truth that they might live this way. And then lastly, as, as, we, as we learn the work we're to do and the walk, the way we walk, Paul also shows us what we are, what we're to watch for what we're to look out for. Paul knows his time to die has come. He, he knows it's at hand, and that's, that's the appraisal of his present situation. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. So all the more urgent are these things that I'm, that I'm charging you with, Timothy. I won't be with you. So the work you do and the way you walk have even greater urgency. When Jim Packer was here and preached on this text a number of years ago, he reminded us of these three pictures that Paul gives us of of a soldier and an athlete and a watchman. See, after Paul kind of takes stock of his current situation. He looks back for just a minute and he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. That's his conclusion to his life. And, and Packer reminded us that that image of a soldier shows us a single-minded devotion. That's what Paul had. And, and the image of an athlete is a striving to win the race. That single-minded striving and that the image of Finishing the faith is one of a watchman who guards what has been entrusted to him. He's, he's keeping watch and keeping it safe. That's the image of a life that has been lived for Christ that Paul paints for us so quickly and succinctly but beautifully. Now, you ever wonder what these three images have in common? They all involve labor and toil and sacrifice, and energy. And they give us a beautifully rich picture of the substance of the Christian life. And and Paul, in effect, is saying, Timothy, as you labor and toil, there's something you need to know. There's something I want you to take note of, something I want you to look for, to watch out for as as you work and as you wait. It's the appearing of our Lord. So, so, Timothy, do as I have done. Look for, long for, love the future appearing of our glorious Savior. That will sustain you as you, as you preach the word and as you walk in truth. So he says, henceforth there is laid up for me 
the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Did you pick up on his appearing that that it was the very place that Paul started in verse 1, and now it's the same place that he finishes? These two little bookends to to frame this passage in a sense, uh, showing us where Paul has focused his mind even as he fought the fight and ran the race. See, that, that verb, have loved, is in the perfect tense. And, and Paul tells us, he puts it that way to, to, to show us of an intense longing for Christ's complete triumph. That longing for his appearing has constantly characterized his life. That's how that, that tense works here. And, and to long for Christ's future appearing is to first have loved his first appearing. Paul tells us that in the opening chapter. He says, Therefore share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, because God gave us his grace in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. Who? What did he do? Abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The very word you're going to preach. That grace that appeared that came to us through the appearing of Christ. That first appearing. That is what Christ accomplished on the cross. And that points us to his second appearing. Where where everything he began will be consummated. That's what enabled Paul to strive and to struggle and to labor and to toil by the grace of God for Christ. See, this this backward-looking and this forward-looking for Paul are happening simultaneously. And I think that's true for every Christian. The incentive and the power to live a Christian life pleasing to God comes from these two directions, these two poles as it were. It comes from looking back with gratitude to the grace of God that appeared in Christ Jesus at his first coming when he purchased our redemption. And it comes from looking forward with hope to the glory of God that will appear at his second coming when he completes our redemption. Hebrews 9 describes the connection between the past and the future work of Christ so clearly when it says this, just as it is appointed for men to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's what captivates Paul. Because he fought the fight and finished the race, he did so with this appearing of Christ in mind. He says he will then receive the crown of righteousness. That's his reward. The crown of righteousness is what it makes, what makes it possible for Paul to enter into the heavenly kingdom. The very righteousness of Christ that is his by faith. 
so that he might behold the glorious appearing of the king who has triumphed victoriously for all eternity. That's what Paul longs for and waits for. It's what kept him on course for the entirety of his life. And he realizes it is the only thing that will keep Timothy on course as well. So we watch for it eagerly as we work for the gospel, as we walk in truth, waiting for Christ to come again. Let us pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for faithful men like Timothy. We thank you for the gospel and the hope of the gospel and how it has been passed down faithfully from generation to generation to generation that we might behold it, that we might hear it, that we might believe in it, that we might not believe in it simply for faith and trusting in you for our salvation. But every day, Lord, as we seek to live for you and walk in truth and wait for your glorious appearing. May it be so by your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.